Welcome to the journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what is Vladimir Putin doing in Ukraine? And over the last few weeks, the world has watched a steady buildup of Russian troops on the borders of Ukraine. Russian's president, Vladimir Putin, dismissed this early on as a training exercise, but initial suspicions that this was part of something bigger were confirmed this week. And following a curious meeting with his Security Council, Putin announced in a televised speech that he had decided to recognise the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk, two Moscow-backed rebel regions in Ukraine. But he went even further than that, claiming the entire country of Ukraine had never really been a state at all. He then ordered Russian troops into the two rebel regions, claiming this was to protect those living there from Ukrainian authorities. And now, a full-scale invasion has begun. Putin's actions have been met with widespread international condemnation and with sanctions, with more of those likely to follow now. So how did we get here and what lies ahead now for Ukraine, for Russia and for anyone else who plans to throw their hat in this particular ring? I'm joined by a now regular guest on the podcast, Donago Bakon, who's a professor of politics at DCU. Donago, welcome back. Oh, thank you. I want to start by asking you how surprised you are at the scenes we've witnessed overnight. I am surprised. I'm shocked. And really, I'm, I'm lost for words, which is a rare position for someone in my profession to be. Um, what we're witnessing is history, and it's history of a very negative sort that we thought we'd left behind us many decades ago in Europe. Um, this idea of uh, an insatiable appetite for territorial conquest of neighbours. Uh, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons why the European Union was established to regulate these kinds of conflicts in a way that we could have a, a, a win-win situation and no longer the zero-sum politics of old. And now we find ourselves back in the 21st century, 2022, and in Europe, in the heart of Europe, and we see this playing out again. Uh, you know, attempts to appease a dictator haven't worked. And in real time, we're seeing a country being annexed, a country which the invader says really has no right to exist, doesn't even acknowledge uh, the people there as being a separate people. It, 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 it has all the hallmarks of, of the worst periods of European history, as I said, we thought we'd left behind. So I am surprised. I mean, we all knew that Putin had aggressive instincts. We'd seen him in Chechnya. We'd seen him in Georgia. Uh, we'd seen him in Syria. We, we'd seen him in action. But we thought that he was a more cautious gambler. Um, in terms of war, I mean, because war has he has utilized war to his own advantage, uh, but usually the wars he'd been engaged in in the past were relatively short and winnable and popular at home, like the annexation of Crimea in 2014. This is different in terms of scale and in terms of it being open ended. There's no obvious exit strategy here. Uh, we cannot really predict what will happen because what has happened has been completely unpredictable. And just to be clear, because this is something that's been debated in recent days, you know, what does and doesn't constitute an invasion. This is a full invasion, right? Oh, this is a full invasion. Now, interestingly, and and this is uh, following the examples of his predecessors, um, he didn't actually declare war. But then, you know, people rarely do. And, and they rarely give you the real reasons why they're going to war. So he gave a very prolonged speech at 5 a.m. Moscow time. I, I suspect it was pre-recorded. Indeed, he was wearing the same clothes and the same tie as he was wearing on Monday. Some people say it may even have been days old. But he gave a very long speech outlining his his grievances. There was no euphoria as there was in 2014 when he was annexing Crimea. This was a speech full of resentment, built-up grievances, hostility and threats. And it finished with a very chilling message that those other countries who are tempted 
wanted to intervene to help Ukraine, you know, you do so at your peril because we will inflict upon you, uh, you know, the type of repercussions you have never experienced in your history. And this is coming from a, a nuclear power. Uh, so this, this, this is where we're at. And yes, it is a full invasion. And before we speak further about what's been happening in the most recent days and months, I want to turn the dial back further. Now, if anyone was watching Vladimir Putin's speech on Monday night, it was clear he was setting the pretext that Ukraine is essentially not a real country. It was never its own state uh, and it was created by the Soviet Union. Is there any grain of truth to that? No, there's no grain of truth to that. Um, yes, I mean, you're right in, in pointing that out. I mean, Vladimir Putin views Ukraine as some kind of political Frankenstein that was, you know, stitched together during Soviet times. That 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 was made clear during his speech on, on Monday, where he more or less blamed Lenin and the Bolsheviks for kind of creating an artificially Ukraine from historical Russian territories. And, and now he believes this Frankenstein is being, you know, artificially sustained by its adversaries. And, uh, you know, this morning he was talking about Ukraine becoming a center for anti, anti-Russian uh, sentiment and and therefore it wasn't in Russia's interest to allow Ukraine to to exist in its present form. So, in terms of its history, Ukraine has a very rich history. Um, and you know anyone who suggests otherwise, you know you have to question their motives. And of course, Vladimir Putin is chief among those. I mean, the, the, there's a t- an attempt often by Putin and his acolytes uh, and supporters to to say things like, "Oh, there's so many Russian speakers uh, in Ukraine," and you know these are Russian-speaking areas, as if that means that they're less Ukrainian. You just have to ask yourself, why are they Russian-speaking areas in Ukraine? It's because of the the, the imperial process, which of course. Uh, you know, stripped Ukrainians of the ability to speak their language in public discourse for for many years. It's as ridiculous uh, an assertion if you were to say in Ireland that those of you who who speak English as your native language in Ireland, you must be pro English. One would simply point out that it was a part of the imperial process to 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 make the Irish language effectively impossible to use and people speak English because of a colonial process that took place over centuries. So it is with Ukraine. Ukraine has been struggling, uh, you know, for its own uh, independence for for many. Many many years, and it's it. They tried even after, the, of course, the collapse of uh, the Russian Empire in World War One to establish a Ukrainian state. Then, just as Ireland was emerging to establish its own uh, independent state, and indeed there was there was contact between Irish and Ukrainian revolutionaries as World War One was progressing, because both could see themselves emerging from the from the the, the embers uh, of the fire that was lit uh, during World War One. So you know, it's a miracle for Ukrainians that they managed to get their own state in 1991 after so many years of petitioning. Uh, for it. And and now they see 30 years after having attained that independence, it being subverted in a very deadly way. And and again, this is this is a you know you can't overemphasize how, how how what a terrible moment in Ukraine's history they have come, perhaps unprecedented. And in terms of post-independence Ukraine, I mean, there's a lot to discuss. There's probably a whole episode in the 2004 Orange Revolution, and that's a good place for listeners to start if they're keen to do a bit of a deep dive into this, but we can't make a 24-hour long podcast. So I want to bring it right up to 2013 and the Euromaidan protests. Can you remind us about what those were centred on? Sure. I mean, the Euromaidan protest, Maidan, by the way, in case people are wondering, means literally town square. It's kind of a, a, all, all kind of centres of cities in, in places like Ukraine, call it the Maidan. Um, and you had a, a, a very corrupt oligarch uh, president called Viktor Yanukovych, who was from Donetsk. 
Many people described him as pro-Russia. It's much more accurate to say he was pro-himself. Uh, he enriched himself uh, to unbelievable uh, levels and, and tried to subsidize his supporters with the investments uh, that were supposed to be for the benefit of the Ukrainian people. And he more or less reached a stage in 2013 where he was on the verge of signing a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union, which would have brought Ukraine closer uh, to the European Union. But what the European Union was offering was preferential trade agreements, but in return, there would need to be reforms, structural reforms, because Ukraine had huge problems with corruption. And this was something that when he thought about it, wasn't attractive. And and then Putin, who could see what was happening, made him a counteroffer. He offered him 15 billion in cash, straight up, and cheaper gas prices. So and no, and he didn't need to reform, of course. And he had an election coming up in the relatively near future. So, when he looked at the the counter offer from Putin, he he took a step back from uh, the 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 signing the agreement with the uh, with the Europeans. And and when people could see what was happening. They saw that he was bartering their own future because so many people in Ukraine want to escape, as I said, this cycle of history, which they associate with kind of uh, leaving the Soviet Union and the whole Soviet experience. And corruption is part of that. And Europe is seen, perhaps romantically, as as, as an escape. It's seen as uh, a way of, of, of kind of attain part of that peace and prosperity that Europe has had for some time. And and when they saw him taking a step back from Europe and a step closer to the Kremlin, they protested in large numbers. And they the protests became deadly. The, 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 the Yanukovych government, they, they fired on protesters, people were killed, and then it spread to other parts of Ukraine. And to the surprise of many people, Yanukovych didn't stay uh, to fight his case. He fled Ukraine, and, and Ukraine then was leaderless. And it was the, at that point that Russia, well, more, more accurately, the Kremlin under Putin, took advantage of the situation to annex Crimea and to, of course, stimulate uh, conflict in Donbass because Ukraine, as I said, was in a state of, of chaos uh, at the time. And, and, and that brings us on, of course, to then the annexation of Crimea and how that occurred. And on Crimea, as you mentioned, it was soon after the aftermath of those protests that the so-called Little Green Men appeared in Crimea, these unmarked soldiers who appeared to be Russian special forces. And then not long afterwards, the peninsula was annexed by Russia. So why did that come about? Well, you know, in Vladimir Putin's view, Crimea should never have been part of Ukraine. And as I said, there's a question mark about whether he, he thinks that Ukraine has a right to exist in any configuration at all. Um, so he, this would have been something he was at least entertaining in his mind for some time. But of course, you know, the opportunity hadn't arisen up until that point. Um, he he saw an opportunity and he seized it. I mean, the, the population of Crimea was approximately... 56% Russian, according to the, the, the previous census. So there was a majority of, of, of ethnic Russians in Crimea. Um, that was the only part of Ukraine, by the way, where such a majority existed. Um, but it's not an overwhelming majority, as I'm sure you'll understand. But he already had the military in Crimea because there was an agreement with the Ukrainian government to allow the Russian naval fleet to stay in Sevastopol. Um, and, and that meant there was a huge military presence already there. And then, as you say, these little green men appeared. And, and Putin, you know, said that he had no knowledge about who these little green men that were taking over, you know, airports and other strategic points. And there's, there's an echo here of what we're seeing 
today in a way in that, you know, the build up to this, you remember the build up, of course, there was like troop maneuvers and we were told there was nothing to worry about, uh, that these were normal maneuvers with no ill intent. We were told the same in 2014 with Crimea, that these were, you know, there was nothing untoward happening. And then, of course, after Crimea was formally annexed, you know, following a bogus referendum where uh, we were we were we were led to believe that 97 percent of the population voted in favor of being annexed. They were not given the option, by the way, in this bogus referendum to even stay in Ukraine. It was either uh, a reformed constitution or, or absorption into Russia. But it, it happened very, very quickly. And we had no sooner began to absorb that as a reality than the conflict begins in Donbass. And that, that took all the attention and energies away from Crimea uh, to Donbass. And Donbass, is, uh, you know, emerges a very lethal conflict, unlike Crimea. Thousands were killed and it remained frozen uh, for, for some time. And of course, has been reignited uh, in, 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 in recent years. But Putin has made a distinction between Crimea and, and Donbass in the important respect that he has, of course, annexed Crimea. It's now formally part of the Russian Federation from Moscow's point of view, but they have recognized Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states, so they haven't formally absorbed them into the Russian Federation. And the unrest and the eventual war that began in eastern Ukraine has culminated ultimately in what we've seen this week, the recognition of those two breakaway separatist states and now a full invasion. So just how closely tied are those two regions to Russia, even just historically? Well, um, a very interesting fact about Donetsk, it wasn't founded by the Russians. Uh, it was founded by a Welshman named John Hughes, uh, who was into coal mining. And uh, he there was coal mining in the Donbass region, and he went there uh, to help establish it as a coal mining area. And um, it developed as a very economically prosperous during the 19th century area. In Soviet times, it was full of kind of heroic miners. It was, again, one of the few regions of Ukraine where Russian was spoken as the majority language, even though Ukrainians were always the, the majority. The, you know, the Ukrainians that came to the region more or less became very Sovietized and Russian-speaking. That said, in the 1991 referendum, which was uh, called uh, on whether people were in favor of uh, an independent Ukraine or not, the vast majority, more than 80 percent uh, in Donetsk and in Luhansk, voted for an independent Ukrainian state. That's very important to acknowledge uh, when we look at the present situation. Uh, and in 2001, which was when the last census was held, a clear majority of people in, Ukraine, in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, identified themselves as Ukrainian. Though, as I said, interestingly, the, the, the vast majority of people spoke Russian as their first language. And again, as Irish people, we should be quite familiar with that, that there's no contradiction between uh, being, being Irish and English speaking. There's no contradiction for Ukrainians in being uh, Ukrainian and, and Russian speaking. But then the conflict was stimulated. Uh, the Kremlin, as I said, tried to take attention off off Crimea. Uh, they stimulated conflict uh, in the Donbass region, and it led to these these separatist proxies being established, um, which now only control one third of the territory of Donetsk and Luhansk. They don't control the whole territory. But the really worrying thing right now is is that they are trying to extend uh, themselves to include the whole of Donetsk and the whole of Luhansk because these were, these these proxies uh, declare themselves to be the the, the legitimate authorities for all of Donetsk and Luhansk and said they don't control two-thirds of their territories. But one of the implications of Putin recognizing them earlier this week is that he has said that if they get into any trouble militarily, the Kremlin will send Russian military forces uh, to, to help them. Now, of course, the Russian military forces have always been there, but now they're there formally. And and and, and that's why the, the fiercest fighting this morning has occurred in the um, in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions uh, because that's where they were expecting it to happen. The, the, the proxies are trying 
trying to push out with Russian, uh, being led essentially by the Russian military forces, and the Ukrainian army is trying to push them back. And by the way, just as I'm speaking, because we're doing this podcast, as you know, in real time, I've just got uh, news from a friend of mine in Kiev that the tanks have already entered the Kiev region. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's a really frightening situation at the moment. Uh, And of course, part of that is because people who are in Ukraine you know, remember what has been happening, what happened after those protests, what happened uh, with Crimea. Uh, And with those two uh, proxies, as you called them, what kind of fighting would have been happening in, in those places or around those places, say, before what's happened in the last week? Well, there was intense fighting, particularly in 2014, 2015. Um, an estimated 14,000 people died. And since then, there's been sporadic uh, conflict. Uh, you might say it's been simmering all this time and, and periodically explodes uh, with fatalities. Uh, about 2 million people have been displaced from Donetsk and Luhansk as a result of the conflict. Uh, Some of those have moved to other parts of Ukraine. Some of them have fled to other countries. On a personal note, I I gave lectures in Donetsk University, the state university there, about a dozen years ago. Now, I I visited Donetsk on many occasions to do research. And the university there, the state university in Donetsk in 2014, when the war started, had to to relocate, essentially. That's a very, that's a big euphemism, as you can imagine. People fled, the faculty and the students. Uh, You know, you think of the problems that students have here in Ireland, it's nothing like having to flee a country in a state of war. And and they relocated to, to Mariupol, which is also in the Donetsk region, but outside Donetsk city. It's in the Ukrainian-controlled part. But that's the very part that's under attack today, intensely. Uh, I was listening to the mayor of, of Mariupol uh, this morning, and he was saying the city is under siege. Um, and it's been attacked. And that's where the university I was lecturing in Donetsk moved to. That's where the students and faculty moved to. So they are, they are going through this trauma uh, a second time. And, and, and indeed, as I said, this trauma has now spread to the whole of Ukraine. It was, you might say, isolated uh, to a certain extent or contained within uh, the Donbass region up until now. But now it's become nationwide. So if we look back at the start of this week, and I know now Monday seems like it was a long time ago, but really it was just a few days What happened on Monday? Monday was the most surreal day. Um, You know, it it started with this, you know, Russian Security Council meeting, you know, which was televised. What was clear as well quite quickly is that it was pre-recorded, even though it was giving the impression it was live. People quite quickly zoned in on people's watches. People were taking, you know, video images of the watches and could see that the times didn't sync. Uh, And indeed, it it was a couple of hours earlier. And Putin was very much like a headmaster calling nervous students before him in his security council. I mean, the the chief of security was like a nervous wreck stuttering in response to to Putin's question, asking him to speak up and speak more clearly about what he thought he should do with Donetsk and Luhansk. And one by one, dutifully, like pliant students, they said, we think you should either recognize Donetsk and Luhansk as independence or annex them formally, but the, the vast majority were all saying uh, to recognize. And he, in this very carefully choreographed play, he simply retired then and said that he would, you know, listen to what they had said, take it into account, digest it, and he'd come back later that day with a decision. And that was part one of this, chore- you know, carefully choreographed play. Part two was later that evening when he gave uh, a speech to the nation 
uh, in which he said that, again, this was the long rambling history lesson full of grievances, full of, 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 of misinformation about history, uh, describing Ukraine as, as, as a neo-Nazi state, for example, and how important it was for, for Russia to confront Nazism. I should add, by the way, because this comes up an awful lot, it's worth pointing out, and perhaps this is the only chance I'll get to make it, that the president of, 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 of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, is Jewish. And there's a 450-seat parliament in Ukraine, and there's not one single um, far-right elected representative, which, you know, you wish you could say the same for Germany or France or the Netherlands. So it's important to stress this because it comes up again and again, and it came up in Putin's speech this morning, that this, this charge that Ukraine is somehow a, a fascist state and, and a junta uh, that came to power in 2014. But but the, the second part of the play, as I said, came in the in the latter part, and that's when he recognized Luhansk and Donetsk as, as independent states. So so these proxies suddenly became, uh, you know, in the Kremlin's eyes, real states, even though, of course, no, no other part of the world will, will recognize them. And he had the two leaders, so-called, from these regions by his side to sign treaties of cooperation um, immediately after the speech. And, and then, of course, he, he, um, he said that now, now he was going to, because of these treaties, give the full support of the Russian army uh, to, to these breakaway regions. And, and that was when people began to realize that we were into a completely uh, new dispensation. And this was no longer just troops moving on the border, that we, we were into something you know, completely different. And of course, none of us would have guessed how, how quickly things would have escalated. And for those who do support, you know, those two regions recognised as independent by Putin, I mean, do we know what they actually want? Do they want complete independence? Do they want union with Russia? There, there, there's, of course, as you can imagine, it's very difficult to get independent opinion polling uh, going on there to, to, to gauge sentiment. There have been some opinion polls taken. They suggest a, a variety of, of of opinions depending on where people are coming from. I think it's important to stress how how the population has been decimated, uh, as I said, because of the fact that so many people left. It's estimated that up to fifty percent of the people living there are pensioners, you know, who depend on 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 pensions uh, from Russia. A lot of them have been uh, manufactured into Russian uh, citizens. So so Putin dispensed with uh, a lot of uh, Russian passports uh, so that he could argue that he was intervening on behalf of Russian citizens. Uh, certainly, what's left there of the population, uh, as a sizable proportion, would have uh, sympathies probably uh, for for the Kremlin and and would like to. Have have a closer relationship, indeed be absorbed into the Russian Federation. And it's significant, um, though not remarkable, that Putin didn't decide to absorb them formally. Uh, in that, he, by the way, he's, he's, he's more or less trying to mimic the Kosovo model, which again has uh, been stressed a lot in the Russian media in recent days, uh, that they're more or less doing uh, what the West did with Kosovo. Um, but it's, it's in terms of the sentiment, as I said, it's, it's very difficult to say, except that we, we do know from the previous census that before the war, the majority of people living in Donetsk, Luhansk, identified as Ukrainian, but were Russian speaking. And, and, had, and as I said, if you go back then to the referendum on Ukrainian independence, the vast majority had voted for Ukrainian independence 30 years ago. And so now troops have gone into Ukraine. We know that's happened. What steps did Putin take to facilitate his military action? And I mean, you mentioned his speech earlier. How is he justifying this? 
Well, he's created a number of false pretexts. Uh, one, as I said, is, is is the Nazism and the fascism. This is a really important uh, element for him. But there are others. I mean, he manufactured a narrative of genocide. Uh, so he's accused the Ukrainian authorities of being engaged in genocide in the Donbass region. Uh, the Donbass region, by the way, in case your readers or our listeners are unfamiliar, is, is simply what people often call Donetsk and Luhansk uh, combined. Uh, so the two regions together are called Donbass. Um, but he's, he's accused the Ukrainians of, of, of genocide, which again, you know, there's, a, there's an OSCE independent special monitoring mission in the Donbass region. They have in no way corroborated those kinds of charges. But we had these, these you know, the talk of mass graves uh, and that Russians were under attack. I mean, there's a very ethnic argument here on behalf of, of, of Vladimir Putin. He's, he's saying more or less that his, his mission and his purpose in intervening is to protect Russians uh, in Ukraine. So that's a very important part of his pretext. But it was manufactured. I mean, you know, if you believe the Kremlin media during the last week, um, eight years of occupation and invasion, the Ukrainian army did not try and retake uh, the areas of Donetsk and Luhansk outside their control. And yet, d- during this last week, we're, we're, we're led to believe that this is the time that they started an attack on Donetsk and Luhansk, when they were surrounded by 190,000 Russian troops poised to invade, that that was the moment that the Ukrainians thought optimal to retake the territories. Of course, that wasn't true. Of course, what we were seeing was a, a very well-prepared plan in slow motion uh, of annexation. And of course, you have to remember what we were being told uh, during the weeks and months last, that these were normal maneuvers on the borders of Ukraine, when in fact, now we can see they were preparing for this day. And how difficult do you think this war could be? Could the Russian troops who moved in this morning face a drawn out resistance movement? Oh, of course they could. And that's why it's it's very dangerous for Putin, because, I mean, democracies can... They, 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 they can take on military conflicts and lose and still survive. I mean, you look at the Americans in Vietnam or indeed even in Afghanistan, uh, it doesn't bring an end to the regime. The regime endures despite the military defeat. Dictators are different. Uh, dictators, you know, base a lot of their authority on being invincible and, and having a monopoly of power. And, and when they are seen to be fallible or if they lose, they can lose everything. And, and we saw that, for example, with the Argentinians in 1982 when they right, tried to retake the Falklands. Um, that was a military junta. And when they lost the war, they lost power. Putin is taking a gamble here because his previous conflicts, as I've mentioned, in Georgia, uh, you know, they have been you know, short, they have been winnable, they have been popular, uh, like the annexation of Crimea in 2014. This is not going to be short, at least it's not anticipated to be so, uh, because if they want to maintain a long-term presence of any kind, there will be widespread resistance within Ukraine. And I know that from talking to many Ukrainians. It will be expensive, even though there's a war chest that the Russians have put aside, which is more than $100 billion, uh, for this. And they have a very sophisticated military. Um, and it will be unpopular, I think, um, because you know when Russian, R- Russian troops sustain casualties, people will ask themselves, I think, is this the war that they wanted? Because you know there's, there's, a, there's a contradictory narrative at the heart of Putin's approach to Ukraine. One is that that you know, Ukrainians are Nazis and they're they're a danger to Russian security. But there's another narrative which exists in parallel, however contradictory it may be, that Ukrainians are a kindred nation. Indeed, they're so similar to Russians that there's really no difference. And if that's believed by a large part of the Russian people, they will ask themselves, why are we fighting our own people? Um, you know, where we and of course many people have been to Ukraine. They have relatives in Ukraine. So I think if it's it, 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 it's it's a very unpredictable war, and and I think that that's that's something different from what Putin's been engaged in the past. So we we haven't been here before in so many ways, uh, in terms of the scale of this conflict, in terms of the, the adversaries, and, and in terms of how open-ended the outcome is. 
You touched on that there a little bit, um, you know, talking about the gamble that this is for Putin. I mean, for, for the man himself, for the leader himself, what are the, are the pros for him? What does he stand to gain? And what are the other things that he could stand to lose in all of this? Well, to gain from his perspective, and it's very hard to get in. This is a question that comes up all the time about what's Vladimir Putin thinking. It's very hard to get into his mind because let's face it, who predicted we would be here today where we are? But in terms of, of, of how he perceives himself, he sees himself as a messiah figure for Russia, as a savior, uh, as as kind of following in this footsteps of the great modernizers of Russia, like Peter the Great, and indeed perhaps even Stalin, uh, for for even though he's a controversial figure, but you know who defended Russia from the Nazis and who who modernized uh, the Soviet Union uh, and whatnot. He sees himself in that kind of modernizing tradition, making Russia strong. And again, in his uh, speech this morning where he more or less declared war on Ukraine, he harked back to the 1990s and he played on this victim narrative, which is very important to him, that, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, and by the way, he did describe the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He was a KGB officer in Dresden, seeing his world collapse around him when communism collapsed. He sees the 1990s as the worst period in, in memory for, for, for Russians, when they were humiliated, when they lost their place in the world. And rather, from his perspective, the West giving a, you know, a helping hand, they tried to humiliate Russia. They, tried, they betrayed Russia. They expanded NATO, NATO uh, eastwards. Um, and and they, 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 they made Russians lose their self-respect. So his role, as he sees it, has been to make Russia great again. And, and, and it's no coincidence that in his Monday speech, he made constant reference to, to the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union as kind of, you know, this is where the natural boundaries uh, of, the, uh, of Russia were, were during the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union kind of fragmented what was historically Russia. And the worrying thing about that is if you go back to the Russian Empire, Russian Empire included Finland, it included Poland, it included large parts of, of what are now EU member states. And he's making it clear that this is what he considers to be the natural boundaries of Russia. So Ukraine is a part of this um, attempt to restore the Russian Empire. He certainly sees himself as having a legacy. Um, and the one thing that protects him is, of course, his hyper-centralized dictatorship and his military and his nuclear weapons, which nobody, of course, no one's going to invade Russia. We know this. So all his talk of insecurity, by the way, is always uh, played up to a certain extent because nobody is going to attack a nuclear power with such a large military like Russia. But, you know, un unlike normal democratic leaders who, you know, will serve their two terms if they if they get it and, and then they retire to spend more time with their, their family and write their memoirs, it's very different when you're a dictator. You know, and and uh, you know, if he loses everything, this goes to the second part of your question. What will his, what, what will he lose? He 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 could lose his his. He, certainly, he would lose the the billions that he has acquired for himself. He would lose his his prestige. He would lose his place in history. He might even lose his freedom or his life. Um, so it's it's a very high stake when you're a dictator, and he has wagered everything on this working out to his advantage. And two other examples of this kind of Russian military action are Chechnya in the 90s and Georgia in 2008. Is this history repeating itself? Um, it's it's different from Chechnya and Georgia, certainly. Um, uh, Chechnya was, you know, there was a heroic, in many respects, uh, attempt by uh, the Chechen people to, to declare independence and to fight for it in the 1990s, which again he alluded to in his speech this morning. He saw that as a terrorist struggle against the Russian state, which the West supported, which is, of course, a bizarre claim to make. The West were not uh, supporting uh, the Chechens, indeed. Uh, but that's his narrative. Um, and and uh, his suppression of 
the Chechens was the suppression of 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 a people. So in 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 one respect, I guess you could say he's trying to suppress the Ukrainian people, but he's not trying to necessarily do it in the same uh, fashion. At least we don't know exactly yet. With Georgia in two thousand and eight, that there are some similarities. Of course, he tried to degrade the Georgian military infrastructure. He recognized Abkhazia and South Ossetia as independent states, but again, in Abkhazia and Ossetia, you have two ethnic groups uh, with their own languages, and it's a very complicated situation in the Caucasus, indeed with the Chechens as well. That's why I, I, we, I kind of wary of making too much of parallels, but I think at the same time, the Kremlin's approach to uh, countries which have tried to deviate, either in terms of regime type or declaring independence, uh, has been quashed, whether it be uh, in, 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 in Georgia or in Chechnya. I mean, you know, Putin can only see two types of, of, of states. There are, they are enemy states and there are puppets. Uh, and therefore, if you're not willing to be a puppet, you declare yourself to be an enemy, which is why his clubs, which he's established to, to rival the European Union, for example, he has the Eurasian Union, it's made up by and large of dictatorships. And similarly, his, his counterpart to NATO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, uh, which intervened in Kazakhstan recently, you might have seen the Russian army intervene there, um, that's also composed by and large of dictatorships. So this is a rival, you know, almost civilizational pole. Um, again, I, I, I keep going back to the this remarkable speech that he made this morning, um, where he started talking about Russian traditional values uh, that he was standing up for, and that Europe was trying to impose these pseudo values uh, on them, which were against the very idea of human nature. Uh, and, 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 and I think he was making reference there to things like LGBT rights and things like that, um, and, and uh, sees himself as kind of standing up for these traditional values. So it's, there's so much packed in there. It's, it's imperialism, it's traditional values, it's Putin's place in the world, it's his inability to tolerate any dissent either within Russia or in his neighborhood, and it's trying to create a sphere of influence for Russia, a, a series of buffer states, as existed during the Cold War. That's the reason why countries like Poland and Estonia and Latvia and Bulgaria, they're looking all at this with, with a sense of deja vu, because they were the buffer states before, during the Cold War. The Kremlin had its own, you know, puppet states in, in, in Eastern Europe. They have now been liberated by their own peoples. They're now in the European Union. But unfortunately, Ukraine is outside the fold. And in terms of the international response, obviously, there has been that widespread condemnation, uh, particularly this morning. And we also saw a number of sanctions announced in recent days. Now, they were maybe a bit more light touch in some instances than were expected, but there are more harsh sanctions on the way now. Does Putin even care about those sanctions? No, I don't think he cares about the sanctions. Uh, you have to remember that we've had sanctions in place since 2014. I say we as in you know, the European Union uh, and America, we'll say if you add the West collectively, uh, and they haven't in any way modified uh, the Kremlin's behavior. In fact, here we are eight years later and the Kremlin is back asking for more of Ukraine. I mean, they wanted Ukraine handed on a plate. That was essentially what diplomacy was all about in the run-up to this. And then when they didn't get Ukraine on the plate, they've now moved in militarily. So sanctions haven't worked. Nord Stream, of course, this pipeline, which is now cancelled by the Germans, this was this was uh, completed after the annexation of Crimea. I mean, it's remarkable that that wasn't enough uh, to 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 initiate serious sanctions against Russia and to cut off Russia uh, from from trade investments that might deter uh, its behavior. I mean, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, who you'll probably remember, was a, a short-term president of Russia uh, when Putin stepped aside for four years. Uh, he said he's on the Russian Security Council. He said uh, earlier on Monday that. You know, they had a lot of experience in absorbing sanctions. They had a very big war chest. They could absorb any sanctions. And in fact, recent experience, and he was talking.
talking about 2014, uh, recent experience had demonstrated that, you know, they'll talk up the rhetoric, they'll have their sanctions, but soon afterwards they realize how important Russia is and they'll be coming back begging for business again. And perhaps he's right. And when we consider what President Putin wants, uh, I mean, I know you were saying yourself earlier, it's very difficult to get into Putin's mind. Uh, but do you think that he would settle for, say, a regime change in Ukraine? Or will it have to go a lot further than that to satisfy him? Well, you see, what would regime change look like in Ukraine? Ukraine, for all its imperfections, and all states have imperfections, is a democracy. They have competitive elections. They've had five changes of president in the last 20 years. Uh, no president, in fact, has managed to get re-elected in the last 20 years. That's how competitive their political system is. Uh, and this this current president, you know, who was a comedian actor before he became elected, is, is, is kind of testimony to how unpredictable the Ukrainian political system is. And his party, which swept the boards in the last parliamentary election, he made it a condition of anybody running for election for his party that they'd never been in parliament before. He wanted a new, clean, non-corrupt kind of political uh, system, um, which was a very brave and audacious thing to do in many respects. And, and this is what challenges Putin. You know, any system which is democratic, which is 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 therefore not Russian or Kremlin sponsored, because of course Kremlin isn't sponsoring democracy, is a threat. So I'm not sure, you know, when we talk of regime change, what kind of regime we could have in Ukraine, because the only one that uh, Putin would be satisfied with would be uh, a puppet state. And the, the, the one type of regime we know that Ukrainians would not be happy with is a puppet state. And therein lies the conflict. Where do you think this goes next? Obviously, it, it's very difficult um, to predict the future. And I mean, today, this morning, I think, took a lot of people by surprise, uh, as you were saying. But what do you think the next steps are? And what are people in Ukraine facing into? Well, one thing is for sure, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, uh, you know, when we're talking on a, at a time like this, you can't even see the better part of it. Um, you can only see what's getting worse. Um, people are fleeing, uh, uh, you know, out of the cities. I, I, a friend of mine who was just staying with me here in Dublin last week returned to Kiev, uh, you might say against the advice of some, uh, and and uh, is now fleeing the capital today. I've been texting with him uh, during the last couple of hours. He's trying to make his way to the, the Polish border with the family and the in-laws. Everybody's trying to, to find a safer place. Uh, right now, uh, for many people, they think it's in the countryside because they think that if 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 the if the Russians are going to invade, they'll invade the cities and strategic places first. So perhaps your little, uh, you know, your relatives, your cousins who are living in a small place in the country, that might be the best place to go to for now before you can get over the border. It's it's just impossible to imagine the pressure that people have been going under, and it's remarkable how calm people have been up until now. Um, what people have often said to me in Ukraine is that it's like living next to a volcano uh, that periodically uh, erupts and, and and you feel the tremors occasionally. And, and of course, you become used to the tremors, you know, because that's what's been happening over the last few weeks and months. We've, we've had tremors uh, and, and, and the Ukrainian president was saying, please don't panic, because, of course, it's in nobody's interest uh, if we panic. We have to we have to remain calm. Um, but at the same time, there comes when, when the volcano does explode again, that's when everybody has to, to, to flee. And Ukrainians are relatively unprotected. They're not even sure what to do. Even the Ukrainian president, who, as I said, has not a lot of political experience, certainly had no political experience before he came to office. This morning, uh, well, the early hours, he was saying to people, stay in your home and, and don't panic. And then in the, later this morning, he gave another presidential address where he was saying, we are distributing weapons to everybody who is willing and able to use them. That's how dramatically the last couple of hours have changed. And, and we don't know what, what's going to happen in the, in the next days and weeks. But what we do know is that there's a large body of Ukrainians, and I know them personally. I've been to all parts of Ukraine over the last 20 years, and I've seen 
how they've stoically tried to stand up to this aggression against all the odds. This is a very much a David and Goliath struggle in terms of, 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 of what they have at their, at their resources. But the big difference is, is that the Russians, when they go into Ukraine, they're fighting you know, as I said, for, for, for empire, they're fighting in a foreign land. The Ukrainians are fighting for their homes. They're fighting for their own country. And you can never underestimate uh, the resilience and the fortitude and the heroism of people who are fighting for their own country. Uh, we know this well, of course, in Ireland, and that you don't have to be militarily superior uh, to win out in the end. And I think that's, that's the danger for Putin because he's now, he's now facing a risen people in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's really one of those ultimate watch and see situations. I want to thank you, Dunica, for joining us again and for talking us through what's been happening so far. You're welcome. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Dunica for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan and my co-host, Grania Nye. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.